Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Once there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot, and he took it to his king, his lord, and said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot that I have ever or ever will grow. And I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect. The king was very touched, so as the gardener turned to leave, he said, you are clearly a good steward. I'd like to give you this plot of land so that you can garden all of it and bring in your produce for us. And then the man, uh, delighted, went home rejoicing. Now, there was another man in the king's court, a nobleman, and he thought to himself, if that's what you get when you give the king a carrot, what if you give him something else? So the next day, this man came before the king with a handsome black stallion. He bowed low, said, my lord, I breed horses. And this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect. The king said, thank you. You may go. The man stood there, clearly confused. The king spoke up, said, you see, the gardener gave the carrot to me. And you were giving the horse to yourself. And the man turned and he went. There's a clear difference in the generous, self-giving of the gardener and the grasping, cunning act of that nobleman. Last week, we finished up the end of Philippians 1, where there was this new mission statement, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to continue in our Philippians series with Philippians 2. We'll look at the first 13 verses but what we'll see is that Paul is applying this to their life together. The manner of life worthy of the gospel should take its cue from the humility of Christ. Rather than relate to one another through the grasping, self-seeking ways of the world, like that nobleman with his horse. Instead, we are called further up, further into the kingdom-based, upside-down ways of Jesus the icon of self-giving love for the sake of others. So this morning, I want to talk about this gospel-centered unity that Paul desires for this church, how it takes its cue from the humility that we see in Jesus, and how that should lead to gospel-centered obedience uh, in their midst. So first, gospel-centered unity, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. St. Paul's greatest hope and prayer is that they would experience the joy of unity rooted in humility. You notice he, he lists several things here at the beginning, and he starts with the word if. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And of course, what does he assume? That if... He's saying, since this is abundantly true, that you have received all of these riches out of the grace and goodness of Jesus, therefore this. 
And he says, do nothing. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. He wants unity for them. He said, out of the abundance, grace, and mercy you have received, let's let this work out in your life through unity. Um, it's interesting. Unity is one of those phrases that um, I don't know we talk about very much. I mean, unity is more than just being together, right? Unity is more than just agreeing together. I think of unity as being for the same things. Like, probably the greatest show of unity in Athens on a week-to-week basis is in Sanford Stadium. <coughs> we're all aligned. We're all, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from. We are united. We have the same mind. We have the same attitude. What's the key to that kind of unity? Look at verses 3 and verses 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. It's an interesting thing he's setting up there for this church, is that they need to be concerned with the needs and concerns of one another. He doesn't say you should completely ignore your own needs. He says, look first uh, to the needs of others. Consider what they need before you consider what you need. There is a unity that he sees where everyone is focused on something greater than themselves, something they focus on uh, together. Um, I mentioned Sanford Stadium. When I think of this, I do think of like team sports. Um, I can't help it. I grew up playing soccer. Um, I grew up uh, actually when my kids were younger coaching soccer, and there's something about a team focused on a goal working together and the kind of joy that brings, the joy that produces. Uh, last night, I took my son Noah to a concert in Atlanta, um, which you shouldn't do the night before you preach, because <laughs> then you forget your notes and have to use your phone. <laughs> but we went to see uh, Victor Wooten and his brothers. Victor Wooten is one of the best bass guitarists in the world. Um, and I thought we were going to go see just this dude sitting on a stool playing the bass guitar and I was like, you know what? I'm going to endure this for my son because he's going to dig it. Um, instead, uh, this guy, Victor Wooten, brought all of his brothers out with him. Um, the Wooten family had five boys. Four of them were living. All of them were musicians. And all of them were professional, accomplished musicians. And these brothers just jammed. And you could tell they've been doing this for decades and decades and decades, since the 70s. There was a unity and a joy and an affection they had in playing music together. St. Irenaeus in the second century once said, the glory of God is a human fully alive. And that's what I thought of. You're watching these folks make this music, make it together. Um, it's collaborative. They're all taking turns soloing. No, and they're, they're excellent at their craft. Um, I went in, it was a three-hour concert. They started with a brass band. I knew zero songs. I just knew that my son loved this music, and I enjoyed a three-hour concert having known none of the music. Do you, do you understand how high of a compliment that is? Um, and we got in about 1.30, 2 in the morning. Um, but anytime you see that kind of unity, it's beautiful. Um, there's something godly in it. 
There's something glorious in it when they are focused on the same thing. And Paul says, this is what it's like to be humble, to have humility in your midst, taking your cue from the example of Jesus. Now, I knew we were going to talk about humility this morning, and I knew that we'd have some of our uh, kids here with us for Family Worship Sunday. And so I decided to reach out to an expert on humility, Malachi Bagley. Malachi is Deacon Texas' son. And what I knew about Malachi is that he loves team sports. He's a baseball player. And here's what you may not know about Malachi. Um, A couple years ago, we went to see his game, and it's pretty much the greatest baseball game I've ever seen. I don't even really like baseball, but Kai was fantastic in this game. But here's the thing. His walk-up music, do you know they have walk-up music now for Little League? (laughs) Okay, his walk-up music was the song Humble by Kendrick Lamar. Um, The chorus of it is Sit Down, Be Humble. And before you go listen to this on Spotify, I just want you to know this is not the Spotify version. This is not even the radio version. This is the Little League Kids Walk-Up App version of the song. So don't judge Texas parenting. Um, (laughs) He walks up every time up to bat with Sit Down, Be Humble. And so I FaceTimed Kai this week. I said, Malachi, I need your help. We're going to talk about humility this week and being humble. Okay. Now, every time you get up to bat, you play that song. How's it go? Sit down, be humble. Yeah, that's how it goes. You're right. Malachi, when you play that song, what do you think that means? Why are you playing that song when you come up to bat? And his answer was fantastic. He goes, well... I'm just letting them know they're not good enough. (laughs) Like, they're not going to get me out. And I'm going to score, and they might as well just save themselves the trouble and be humble. (laughs) (laughs) And what I loved about that is he's right. Because humility is usually something um, that comes from outside of ourselves. Life humbles us. A task humbles us. A boss humbles us. An opponent humbles us. That's where Jesus is different. And that's what Paul wants this church in Philippi to reflect on, is the beauty and the glory of Jesus who humbles himself, willingly, lovingly, for us and for our salvation. Again, this isn't groveling or low self-esteem. It's not false modesty. He humbles himself for us because we need him to. It's also been said, often been said that humility, just as a one-liner, isn't thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. That's Christ-likeness. That's the kind of humility that Paul desires here and he goes, let's look, at Philipp- let's look at the whole story of Jesus through the lens of humility. Because you can look at the gospel from all these different angles. It's a, it's a beautiful diamond. He goes, what if we look at it from the lens of humility? And that's verses 5 through 11. This is just the story of Jesus highlighting his humility throughout as the dominant theme. Uh, by the way, most folks do think that these verses 5 through 11 um, we're an early song in the early church. 
that they would have sung this to one another. It's possible uh, Paul, the good preacher, is just bringing in a song that they already know, that they already take joy in. He wants them to think about Jesus. So here's what he writes. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's the humble lens we see. We'll come back to it in just a second to see uh, what God does after that. But this is an amazing thing to think through. That the second person of the Trinity, <laughs> the preexistent glory of the Father, the perfect image and likeness of God would humble himself, would empty himself, would veil his glory and come among us uh, for our benefit. Not to benefit himself, but for you and for me. Instead of grasping or holding, because when we get a hold of something, we hold it, right? If we have status, if we have a claim, if we have something good, we usually hold on to it. Jesus doesn't hold on to anything. Instead, he opens his hands and he comes among us. He doesn't uh, grasp. The scandal of the incarnation is that the Son of God becomes flesh and dwells among us. That, that he willingly subjects himself to weakness. That he comes as an infant, as a child, hungering and crying, being open to pain. He was willing to veil his glory and power and to be born as a helpless baby. And two quick things, and, and I could do more with this, but um, the way Paul utilizes this poem, this song, he's trying to remind them of at least two stories in the Old Testament that are really important. The first is this idea of grasping or clutching. In the very first chapters of Genesis, there is a grasping, clutching act that is disastrous. The Lord tells them, he makes Adam and Eve, any, any tree, any fruit in the garden you can eat except this one. And what do they do? They reach out and they grasp. They pluck, they take it. And Paul wants them to know that's not the way of Jesus. Instead of grasping like Adam, he opens his hands freely. He's reversing the destruction wrought by Adam in his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. We'll get to his ascension as well. The other thing we see here that's just evoking an image is it says that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Um, you might know the, the way you could translate that is the form of a slave. And what, what Paul is thinking of here, what the song evokes here, is not just Adam, but Moses. So think about Moses. If you know the book of Exodus, Moses um, is adopted by Pharaoh. He's raised with royalty. He's raised with power. He's raised with honor. And eventually he looks out and he sees the plight of the slaves, the Hebrew slaves, and realizing that that's actually where he comes from, 
he takes on their form. He willingly leaves the palace to enter their world as a slave. And Paul wants us to see that Jesus has done the same thing, just like Moses. The favored son, the one living in luxury and power and honor and glory, gives it all up for you and for me out of his love for us. Now, it's amazing to think about how the Lord Jesus was humble. It's, it's been said that just contemplating the incarnation is a school of humility. And not just his incarnation, but his life, his ministry, the death he was willing to endure, um, not just a mere execution, but a humiliation. And it says that he goes willingly. And he goes forgiving as he does so. And he goes with love overflowing from his heart. Paul is overcome that he would subject himself not just to death, but he says even death on a cross. I mean, can you imagine the favored royal son being willing to undergo this? And he's just asking this church, if that's what Jesus was willing to do, one erupt in joy that he did this for you and then take a cue from him to consider one another and one another's interest above your own. Have unity, have humility, do the work that God has given you to do. There's an ethical link between the Lord Jesus' death on the cross and what he wants for his church and how he wants us to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, reflecting on this passage, you knew I was going to get there. It says, as you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is this is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. This is a God who is known most clearly when he abandons his rights for the sake of the world. And he calls his church to the same. St. Augustine once wrote, Our Lord came down from life to suffer death. The bread came down to hunger. The way came down on the way to weariness. The font came down to thirst. That's what we see and the beauty and humility of our Lord. And then the last few verses, verses 9 through 11, uh, we see that if the Lord descended, if that's the direction of the story, then it reverses and goes right back up. Here's how this song concludes. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love this. Paul, Paul tells us how Jesus left his rightful place and came, and came for you and came for me. He goes, but make no mistake, in his resurrection, in his ascension, he has resumed his rightful place on the throne. 
And he is worthy of all honor and glory and praise and allegiance. And in response to his humble obedience, the Father vindicates and exalts the Lord Jesus. It should be an encouragement for us, those who share in his suffering, those who participate in his suffering, to have a great hope that we will one day share in his victory. We'll share in his victory uh, just as we share now in his humility. Part of the way this church is called to unity and humility, part of the way they're called to suffering and perseverance is to have the same hope that God will fully vindicate and exalt the Lord Jesus. That his rightful reign will fully come and his good way will flood and fill God's good and renewed creation. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right after this, Paul concludes with a word of obedience. Verses 12 through 13. It says, therefore, and I, I love it. Paul's going to give you this huge, dense section of theology. Okay, therefore, here's how you apply it. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, he's so encouraged by them and optimistic for the potential in their midst. As you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He calls them to holiness and he calls them to obedience. That's part of what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Um, by the way, I think you know, when he says that, it doesn't mean that we are to work in order to earn our salvation. He's been pretty clear from verse chapter 1, I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Here, hey, work it out with fear and trembling. Hey, but don't forget, it is God who is at work. Uh, in you. He's calling them to cooperate for the, with the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit uh, in their lives. That's what it means to work out our salvation. That we have been saved, that we are being saved, and that we, sh- we will be saved. He, he calls them not to fear in a cringing, scared sense, but a proper awe and reverence and an awareness that God is at work in us. Do you ever think about that? That the very God who made everything you see is at work in you, fashioning you, conforming you to the image of his son Jesus, using the circumstances and people and events of your life for your own good in ways that will make you like his son, Jesus. No, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so may God, through the Holy Spirit, continue this kind of good work among us. Do this good work among us individually and here at St. Thomas as a church. May the Lord bind us together in gospel unity. Give us the gift of humility, modeling the self-giving love for the sake of others we find in our Lord Jesus. May the Lord grant us the obedience of faith 
as we follow God together as a family on mission, focused not on ourselves, but focused on the gospel and focused on others here in Athens. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.